Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 279, Medical Liberty and Unfiltered Truths with guest Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Today's episode is going to be important in understanding where overreach has occurred in the current pandemic situation, concerns with current mandates, insight on VAERS or the vaccine adverse effects registration, manipulations in research, and nutritional research and solutions. And Chris is really, he's a nerd like us. Um, (laughs) I remember like way back when, probably when I was getting my master's, like downloading his like nutrient guides and highlighting them and marking them up. So he's still doing a lot of that, but he's been really um, poignant on the front lines in New York fighting against mandates. Yes. So we will talk about all of his important work as an advocate opposed to vaccine mandates. And he'll really unravel a lot of the research and how research often can be manipulated via funding or via the driver or developer of the research to try to force or enforce a narrative that's already in play. Um, So how data can be manipulated for focused outcomes, if you will. This episode, just as a disclaimer, is going to be kind of uncomfortable at times. Uh, You know, as a passionate functional medicine practitioner, I am constantly going out on a limb and sharing medical truth at this very scary time of censorship and defamation and cancel culture. And uh, recently have just had a bout with Instagram in a real post that I did on uh, N95 masks and children where anyone who liked it got two to three messages of it being misinformation and harmful. Uh, People weren't able to share or tag stories of mine. And of course, I got the big shadow ban from Instagram. So if you want my unfiltered medical truth and updates throughout the bad season, make sure that you join me on Patreon. That's p-a-t-e-r-o-n dot com slash Allie Miller R-D. Um, again, buckle up. This is going to be a great episode. We're going to unravel data. Um, it might get a little number dense, but don't worry. You don't really have to take notes. We'll be sharing Chris's uh, guide to treatment protocols because like Becky said, he has nerded out deep into the clinical data on what's been the most effective tools uh, from prevention to active infection to post-infection treatment, and then also the kind of more larger draconian overreach of where mandates and government authority and influence on our sovereignty could take us as humanity. Yes. So it's going to be a good one, and um, we can't wait to have him on. But before we do that, let's have some updates. Yes. Let's talk first about our women's wellness retreat. So by the time this episode airs, I think we're at like six weeks out from the retreat um, and two weeks or less to purchase your spot. So we're cutting off um, sales for the retreats that we can be 
as prepared as possible for everybody that's there. Um, and there may not be tickets left by the time that this airs, but hopefully there's one or two spots. Yes. If there's one or two left and you'd like to grab it, you can use the code PODCAST10 to save 10% on your selected room. So the retreat is a sliding scale from $1,500 to $2,000, and it's an all-inclusive workshop. So this includes over six hours of lectures, daily movement, all of your meals, an off-site tour to an olive farm in Hill Country, luxury accommodations in Dripping Springs, Texas. We have a 9,000 square foot home that we will be staying in, Becky and I, as well as our team, and all of you lovely women, 34 women. So it's going to be intimate, a lot of exploring and keeping your passion of food as medicine alive, as well as troubleshooting some functional medicine areas, supplement strategies, and staying sovereign and supported with fortitude and fluidity through yet another year of, here we go, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, of staying strong for our household in medical autonomy and freedom. Um, I mean, I'm just so excited as we're building our partners for this retreat. Some of my favorite brands, pretty much all of my favorite brands are going to be involved, whether they're contributing to your swag bags, which are looking like over $250 value, uh, whether they are providing food for our snacks, um, like our matcha bar and our bone broth bar that we'll have throughout the day. Um, or whether they are doing a tasting like Dry Farm Wines and our charcuterie from Salumaria. So we can't wait for you to get a taste of food as medicine from how Becky and I day-to-day live and thrive. And we can't wait to meet you and share hugs and also know that you will have an amazing experience hanging out with other like-minded individuals. I've had questions about like what age range, and it's pretty broad, um, you know, anywhere from like late 20s into early 70s. Uh, the lodging options, there are single beds. So there's a big shared room right now. I think we have two or three spots left of single beds in a room of eight beds, and that's the most price affordable. There's also solo queen beds in a shared room where there'd be three solo queens. We call that the three amigas, I think, uh, with a private bath. And then we have also, I believe, one left fab four pack, which would be with maybe to uh, groups of besties. So bring your bestie and you can bed share, save some money, and then there'd be another probably cool couple to hang out with. And um, we just can't wait to see the synergy at play. The wellness workshop that we did in December was just so much magic. And just seeing these women come to life uh, during the day and just that palpable energy of joy and belly laughs and inspiration. I am so excited to meet you all and do it again on March 25th through the 27th. You can go to AllieMillerRD.com. Up at the top, there's a bar where you can click right into the retreat page, or you can just search the term retreat in our search bar and make sure that you snag your spot. And uh, really, I mean, again, don't forget to bring a good friend. This would be a great thing to travel with a buddy. And then after the retreat, you can keep each other accountable on all of your, you know, new learned habits and tricks and tips as we always like to say yep and I think a couple of women are bringing their daughter so a really good like mother daughter totally sister trip totally yes all right let's have a brief word from our sponsor for this episode Santa Cruz Medicinals yes so y'all know that I am a big proponent of cannabidiol or CBD and this is the non-psychoactive component of the cannabis plant so it is going to be THC free and the CBD itself is what's actually made by the human body we are wired with an endocannabinoid system and CBD has been shown to be anti-inflammatory as well as supportive for neurological health so when we're talking about anxiety or that fight or flight stress response 
CBD can be very calming and regulatory for inflammation as well as brain function. So CBD can be a great thing to add to your morning coffee. Um, If you're doing like a fat-fueled latte and adding your coconut oil and your grass-fed butter, adding about 33 to 40 milligrams of CBD can cut that epinephrine or that adrenaline surge from your coffee cup. Also doing a tincture or dropper in the evening or trying Santa Cruz Medicinal's Deep Sleep Caps. This is a formula that combines valerian root as well as L-theanine and CBD, which is a great option to get into that deep REM cycle of your sleep. They have topical pain salves and they have various capsules where they incorporate nootropics like lion's mane or anti-inflammatories like turmeric. And then they even have what is typically the go-to concentrated tinctures. And what I love about Santa Cruz Medicinals is that they provide really potency in their products. Many of the tinctures on the market are going to be like 10 to 15 milligrams a dropper. And in their most concentrated formula, they have 83 milligrams per ml. So they actually recommend that you do a challenge of 100 milligrams a day for seven days to really experience the influence of CBD in your body. And then you can titrate or dose down, but you're not wasting your money on some hip trendy product with a pretty label that really doesn't have clinical efficacy when we're hanging, you know, under 50 milligrams a day or so. So go on over to scmedicinals.com, use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. This will save you 15% on your order. Also let them know that you learned about them from the Naturally Nourished podcast and helps support our sponsorship and you get free shipping on that order. So again, it's scmedicinals.com, code AllieMillerRD at checkout. All right, I will go ahead and read Chris's bio and then we will bring him on the show. Chris earned his PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut. He served as a postdoc research associate in the comparative biosciences department of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. He was also an assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College. In the fall of 2016, he made the decision to leave the world of academia and pursue entrepreneurship, a transition he completed in January of 2017. He's currently conducting independent research, consulting, working on information products, collaborating on information and technology products, and producing tons of free content to help people gain better health. He has deep and personal experiences with the power of food, movement, and mindfulness to support health and well-being. Chris wants to take what he's learned and pay it forward. He's constantly learning from his own challenges, failures, successes, and by scouring the scientific literature, whether uncovering long-forgotten and neglected evidence from yesteryear or following and deciphering the latest findings. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for coming on the Naturally Nourished podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, we have so much to cover today. We are excited to talk to you about functional nutrients as well as the bad season, as I call all things pandemic. <laughs> uh, I, I'm like, you know what? They put enough marketing dollars in there. We just call it the bad season in my household. Um, nice. So I, I want to start with pandemic actually and just kick off for you in your perspective. When did you realize that the way that this virus was being approached was a different beast? Um, you know, what were one, two, or three of those aha, oh shit, this is different moments for you? Well, I think the the first one living in New York, what I mean, the first time that I knew that public health policy was irrational was when I heard Cuomo, the, the then governor of New York state, issue what I now call the Cuomo test, which is if it would save one single life, we have to shut the whole city down. Right. 
And that, I mean, it's what was shocking was that the press let him get away with saying that as if it was reasonable. And it's, it's not, I mean, it, it, the whole city would always be shut down if saving one life were the issue, because you could save many lives just by completely shutting down all transportation, sure, especially, especially cars, you know? Um, and so, I mean, that was, I wouldn't say that was a turning point. I mean, I, I, it, but it was, especially in retrospect, I would, I would kind of pinpoint the beginning of my realization there. I mean, it, it did go, it did go through my head. Well, like, that's a crazy thing to say. And I can't believe they're getting away with saying that, but that didn't necessarily make me think that, you know, masks don't work or like, you right. know, there was, there was tremendously more BS going on in the background. But it's interesting um, you call that out because that was the one line that I would get pushback from mother. I've mm. always said, masks in a real world environment are net harmful, not net neutral. Like we need to have that conversation. And, and I would always hear, but if it just saves one life, <laughs> I was like, so that, that rhetoric I think was really strong and, and, um, took on quite an influence of, uh, disconnecting critical thinking. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with that, but it's, it's far worse than disconnecting critical thinking. It represents the embracing of net harm as public health policy, right? Yeah. Because it represents, um, it it represents the complete ignoring of any costs, right? This was, this was actually used to antagonize and shame people who talked about costs. Like, mm. if you you know if you mentioned economic harm you were, you know, caring about money instead of mm -hmm. the one life that could be saved. The grandma murder. Um, and right. And that's and that's that represents murderous public health policy because you can't hurt the economy without costing lives. Mm -hmm. And I think I think people in the I think people in in our like part of the world are especially well to do people are are very disconnected with how these lockdowns impacted much of the world. Like I went to, um, I went to the Bahamas and I was in the capital, which pre COVID was a very, very thriving place. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, just in the matter of a year or two, it's turned into looking like the worst parts of Detroit. And, um, you know, there's the huge parts of the world that relied on tourism for money have just been completely yeah. plunged into poverty. I mean, not that, you know, not that there aren't people hit really hard in the United States, but I think we got buffered for it for a while by the enhanced unemployment and things like that, that you know, kind of, but anyway, so that was a turning point. Um, and it, and it just, and it just represented the, like the, um, the getting rid of cost benefit analysis in mm -hmm. public health policy, like just throwing it out the window. Um, but anyway, uh, other turning points I would say were uh, one turning point. It, like it wasn't a turning point for me. It was like a turning point for the rest of the world that happened to me rather than a turning point that happened within me. And this was <clears throat> through the first like seven months of the pandemic I was spending most of my day quite often working overtime researching nutritional things that could be done 
yeah. to help protect against COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time the vaccines roll around, I'm like completely steeped in mountains of research of things that can be done to protect you against COVID. Right. And so, and I'm also just very accustomed to reading research about COVID and then publishing my analysis of it. And so two things happen when the vaccines come out. One is that they turn into this one thing that can be done for COVID. And it's worse than that. It's really like much of it has religious overtones, like the one thing that is unto the remission of sins without which you can't be saved Uh, is really how how it often is preached. In Fauci, we trust. I was like, how could you get more? (laughs) Oh, well, I trust. (laughs) Well, I you know, those um, you know, those Roman Catholic candles with saints on them. Yeah, there's a Fauci. Yeah, I was in I was uh, in Vermont, um, you know, kind of mid pandemic. And I was in a gift shop and I saw St. Fauci candles. Yeah. <laughs> that's when I knew it was one. a cult. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> Cuomo truly, one, truly, which yeah. I wonder if that's come off the market now, the Cuomo one. <laughs> yeah. oh Probably. Anyway. I don't know. <laughs> I hope yeah. so. <laughs> um, but I mean, even when Cuomo was out, we got Hochul right. saying right. that like right. she was sending out the apostles of God to get uh-huh. people vaccinated uh-huh. and stuff yeah. like that. Like they don't shy away from the religious overtones, but right. the, the, the craziest, like reli- the craziest, the thing that really made me see it as like the one thing you must do under the remission of sins was when um, someone showed, someone sent me a poster of in uh, new Orleans, there's, there's a program where felons can get their felony expunged from their record. Mm -hmm. And there's no literal quid pro quo that if you get vaccinated, you will get your felony expunged. But they turned it into marketing that sounded like that, that presented it as kind of a, a soft quid pro quo. And so what they were doing was they had throughout, you know, going way back before the pandemic, you could get help from the DA's office to fill out the, the paperwork needed to get your felony expunged. And so what they did was they turned that help into events that you had to get vaccinated to go to. Mm-hmm. So they were, so they're, they're putting out these posters that say, want to get your felony expunged, just get vaccinated here yeah. and then show your proof and come to this event and we'll help you do it. By the way, if you're already vaccinated, you can go to this different link and schedule your slot now. And so it, it wasn't a legal quid pro quo, but it was pitched as the vaccination was the way you could get your felony expunged from your record. Right. Which really sounds like a baptism in a, you know, in a modern civic sense. But anyway, um, it's interesting. I, I know we won't go too far that on that, but I read Book of Revelations in April of 2020 because I even before you know that they were out, I was like, I just need to remind myself of what all happens here <laughs> so I can set the tone. It's funny you say that. Someone on my YouTube live this morning brought to my attention that Revelation 18:23. If you look at a typical translation, it says, "For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery." But actually, in Greek, the word that they translate as sorcery is pharmakia, which in yes, modern, yes. Mm-hmm. which in modern Greek means yeah. pharmacy, the use yeah. of drugs or medicines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> separate podcast episode. Going, <laughs> moving on, or going back. Um, so back to the story. So, what for me, the the turning point that happened, kind of to me rather than within me, 
was that I just kept doing what I was doing the whole time. And so here I am thinking there are many things that you can do to protect yourself from COVID. I'm researching that the stuff on the vaccines comes out. So I think, you know, I'll research that people want to know what I think. I'll share my opinion and so on. And so it became this it became so intensely. This is the one and only thing that you can do that. For many people, if you shared information about anything else that can help, you were like anti-vaccine, right? And so even uh, Instagram threatened to delete my account because I shared a post about research showing that L-arginine supplementation can help uh, radically hasten the improvement of respiratory distress Mm -hmm. in people who are suffering with severe COVID pneumonia with a high risk of death. And what they said was I was causing physical harm to people by disincentivizing them from getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But that post did not say anything about vaccines anywhere. There was no mention of the word vaccine in the post. Right. So Instagram is has taken upon itself to determine who I'm causing physical harm to, but their entire rationale is not that I, that I was sharing information that was critical of the COVID vaccines. It was that I was sharing information on something that can help with COVID. And if people know that something else can help with COVID, they'll be less likely to get vaccinated. That that was their reasoning. Um, And then other people were not quite that extreme, but there was definitely, you know, hordes of people that were, in my audience that left it, but not without going through some process of late, you know, just launching wild Shaming. accusations at Shaming, me. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, I had someone tell me that I was personally responsible for mass graves in Mexico because I shared a story about uh, a German research, uh, the head of the uh, German um, national autopsy unit who wanted to do more autopsies on people that died like within within considerable pro- like within a small window of time after getting vaccinated mm-hmm. and um i was sharing a news story and i was like yeah that's, in- that's important research to do and so now because that story is critical of vaccines now all of a sudden i'm responsible for everyone in the world's choice to get unvaccinated which is the primary reason anyone is dying and so if there's mass graves in mexico it's because they weren't vaccinated enough. And if they weren't vaccinated enough, it was my fault because I've shared information critical of of COVID vaccines. Um, And then I I also had a, I had a a doctor who was uh, a member of my membership program and uh, I would consider a colleague and even a friend who um, questioned whether at first it seemed that this person questioned whether I was human. And after after a little bit of conversation, a little bit of dialogue, I clarif- we clarified that what, she, what this person was saying was that if I would go to an ICU and see the people dying and still maintain my position, what I was saying, then I would not be human. <laughs> but that's hmm. kind of a roundabout way of questioning whether I'm human. But right. anyway... You're um, like, but actually, I would have all of these ways to treat them. I right, would put them right. on a knack drip. I would put them. On, it's like here we go. Right, boom, right. Boom, 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 boom. So I mean, so that was like, I think the vaccines coming out was a was a turning point, but it wasn't really a turning point for me. It was a turning point of the attitude of 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 society. You know, like most of society got wrapped up 
in this belief that the one thing that you can do to be a moral human being is support universal vaccination with the COVID vaccines. And if you take any other position, then, you know, your your hands are. The blood of the blood of the world is on your hands, basically. Yeah. Um, and then but the, the so the turning point, though, that that really made me drop everything else that I was doing and kind of full time be devoted to research on the vaccines with a particular with a particular goal in mind of doing the critical analysis that would be helpful for legal battles over vaccine mandates and part-time being an activist in New York City where I reside against the mandates here. That was just seeing tens of thousands of people around me lose their jobs or be at imminent risk of losing their jobs. You know, I got kicked out of my gym and I luckily had the space, which is not, you know, not common for a typical person in New York City, but I had the space to uh, and the you know was financially capable of buying a squat rack and having that in my in I turned half my home office into a home gym within three days, mm-hmm. and so I that was just kind of like great now I can now I can squat barefoot in my boxers and probably I'm better off you know forced yeah. me into into making things a little bit better for myself, um, so that you know for me it's and you know it's it's like harder to take someone on a date now if there's many things you can't do, (laughs) Uh but, but for me, I mean, I, I, that's just, you know, I brush the dirt off my shoulder and move on, but what just drove me to complete fury over this is just seeing that the, you know, tens of thousands of people are truly more than that. I mean, really, even in New York, even in, even in New York, I think millions of people at least felt bullied into getting vaccinated when they when they didn't want to for the sake of their jobs. Um, But, you know, then in the in the tens of thousands of, you know, who have actually lost their jobs. um, And I I just I'm I think it's just completely immoral. And I'm totally furious that the bar to to decide what you inject into your own body is, you know, in my case, I just I left my job in academia years ago because I didn't want anyone telling me where to be at 930 in the morning. <laughs> and, and I happened to succeed, which is not the case with the majority of right. businesses that people start. And I happened to see succeed quite quickly. And, you know, the bar to decide what you, you need to inject into your own body with the cost of you not being able to feed yourself or your family yeah. if you make the wrong choice should not be that you are so obstinate about your own personal freedom that you refuse to be employed by anyone and you have like a high enough skill set and IQ to pull it off rapidly. Like that's, yeah. it's not fair that that's the benchmark for being able to control what goes in your own body. No. And that's not most, most people's reality. Um, Let's talk maybe about just research in general and kind of this world of um, some of the research findings that you've had within this time. Maybe let's talk about um, 
get into some of the nutrient piece of the puzzle. I know you mentioned arginine, um, and I know, you know, quercetin zinc, we've been talking about this. We've been a broken record as well and told that we were being, you know, dangerous telling people to take, um, <laughs> 10,000 IU of vitamin D and, and things like that. But, um, let's talk about kind of some of your findings in the nutrient space, and then maybe transition into why the world of research can be kind of problematic in terms of what gets out there and what gets published. All right. Um, so I, I publish a COVID guide that's at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash COVID guide. It's now in its seventh edition. And that's basically my up-to-date protocol based on all the research that I've done on what you can do to protect yourself. And if I, I could break that down into things that you could do prophylactically to prevent as a, you know, things that you could do every day for prevention, then things that you could do when you get sick and, or, and actually in between that was things that you can do during ex cases of exposure, which you could define. I think different people should define that differently. So if you consider yourself very high risk and you think that, you know, if you get, if you ever get exposed to COVID, you're probably going to die, then you might want to, treat exposure to mean like you came within six feet of someone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you think that you've had COVID before, it wasn't that bad. Um, you're probably not going to get it again. And if you do, it'll probably be even, you know, closer to a cold or something like that, then you might want to just consider exposures when you know, you were around someone who had COVID and you couldn't do anything about it. And then in between there's, you know, there's many, many different ways to decide what an exposure is for you based on your risk tolerance and your per perceived risk to yourself of, of getting COVID. Um, for a lot of people, it might be if they work in a healthcare center a setting when they're around people with COVID all the time, then maybe going to work every day is a presumed exposure. And for other people, maybe it's just whenever they're in the midst of large crowds that are that when people were probably dropping their spit and sneezes on top of them because they were in a mosh pit or something like that, yeah. then maybe that's an exposure. Yeah. But anyway, um, preventatively, the, the biggest thing that you can do is maintain your vitamin D levels at mm -hmm. 50 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. That cuts the infection risk in half. Um, there's not a lot of other stuff that are very well supported as a preventative. Um, so a lot of other things that you could do I mean, most things that you could do to keep yourself healthy are, are very good as a preventative. Reduce oxidative stress, get a good, yeah. The, right. The I mean, you don't, stuff. you don't need, you don't really need COVID specific data to know that you should be getting good sleep every night and you should be managing your stress right. well, and you should be eating a nutritious diet and you shouldn't be deficient in anything, et cetera. But the data as a preventative on vitamin D specifically is very good. Um, Around exposures, I think that the where the best data is, is doing some kind of antiseptic rinse of your mucosal tissues. Mm -hmm. So the, the one that has the best data behind it in randomized controlled trials is povidone iodine, which is a specific type of, it's a, it's a synthetic binder that um, contains iodine and it's widely, widely used in healthcare settings as an antiseptic comes in 10% bottles that you can get 
probably in a drugstore. You can definitely get on Amazon and you would want to dilute it down to 1% if you use the most common thing used in the literature or 0.5% if you use something that's probably just as good, but a little bit less irritating. Um, and if you wanted to kind of go the full mile with it, then around an exposure, you'd put one or two drops in your eyes, uh, do a 30 second rinse of each nostril with a neti pot like thing, um, and then do 30 seconds of a rinse with just a few milliliters of, of the liquid, 30 seconds, rinse your mouth, 30 seconds, gargle. Um, and then you can do the same thing if you get sick, uh, but you would just sort of do it four times a day. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably sufficient just to do the rinse through your nose. I've never put it in my eyes and I, I don't really like, I mean, it probably turns your vision amber a little bit for until it fades <laughs> away. And I, so I've never done that, but there was, there was a Bengali trial that took people that yes. had we contracted COVID and they used that protocol in the eyes and, um, and it, they had an 88% reduction in the death we rate. What were you going to say? We linked that study three weeks ago in our podcast, the Bengali. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so there's, there's also an observational study in Israel that uh, found that people that use eye wipes and there, there were you, the common brand in the pharmacies is Dr. Fisher. And uh, they, these are just, um, ju they're just eye wipes. I mean, they're not even, I think the Dr. Fisher eye wipes don't even have any, any pharmaceutical antiseptics in them, if I remember right. Um, like and they saline? found like a, like a saline I forget or? what's in it. It's, okay. um, I forget what's in it. I think there's some like chamomile and okay. whatever in it, but it's, it, it doesn't seem like whatever's, it doesn't seem like what's in it is any kind of magical, like yeah. powerful antiseptic or anything. So it seems like it's the physical act of cleaning the eyelids. Eye hygiene. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's an observational study. And so it's, it's not at the level of the randomized controlled trials, but it does offer some support to the idea that you want to clean your eyes. And there is some other support, like it is known that it can that, that the virus can infect the eyes and that it can be carried in teardrops. And there is an interesting anecdote of the guy in China who was first ringing the alarm bells before the government started paying attention was a, an ophthalmologist. And, um, and it's been speculated that he might have contracted it from, from the eye route from his patients. So it, it's interesting that, that um, but I mean, in my, in my experience, like if you have any generally speaking like if you get sick with almost anything an upper respiratory virus you're it's probably going to be in your nose and throat are probably going to be more important than your eyes and like if you yeah. start sneezing po the povidone iodine will probably just kill it <laughs> um and there's another substitute called iota carrageenan that you could use instead of it beta dean nace cold defense nace ball spray um is it doesn't have as good data behind it, but there is a randomized controlled trial using, it wasn't using that brand. It was using a, a different product that's not available in the US that has a somewhat higher percentage of iota carrageenan, but that, that brand, the betadine nace ball spray is the closest thing to what was in that study. And that study just used high-risk health workers, healthcare workers who had a lot of exposure and they found that just doing the four four times a day spraying one spray into each nostril cut down the infection rate by 80%. Um, and so that's probably a, a good substitute for that. It's, it's not good for an eye 
drops or rinse or anything. It's a spray that goes in your nose. Um, but it's, it's super convenient to carry around in a backpack or yeah. in your pocket or in your glove compartment in your car or something like that. Uh, so I think it's, it's, I consider it like the travel version of the iodine rinse. Um, okay. but anyway, uh, I also, there's not good data behind these, but I think that life extension enhanced zinc acetate lozenges, which are very well formulated to kill the common cold by delivering ionized zinc at the highest percentage possible to the nose and throat tissue. In my personal experience and in some case reports, it looks like these are also very effective against the COVID virus. And so I personally, and you know, I have it in my protocol, even though there's not super good data behind it compared to some of the other stuff, but I think those are also very good as a pre-post-exposure uh, um, prophylactic thing to go along, like kind of a partner to the iodine rinse. And for some people that, oh, I should mention that some people can't tolerate the iodine rinse because thyroid issues or other stuff. And sure. so the betadine naseball spray is a good alternative for them as well. Uh, and then some people just don't want the, the synthetics of the povidone. You can probably replicate this with like Lugol solution in a neti pot, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to equate the percentages, but you probably want something... I mean, it would probably be something like 10, 10% instead of 1%. Um, so the, the, but, but povidone iodine does, even though it has a synthetic in it, it, the original reason that it was patented in the first place is because you can kill microbes with a smaller percentage of it. And it's generally speaking, it's less irritating to the mucosal passages because you can use that lower concentration. Um, and it, it does have an incredible track record of safety yeah. in, in medicine. So, mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of the other stuff would be if you get sick. So yeah. if you, if you do get sick, I personally think that, um, I, I think that if you develop any symptom, you, sh it's, it's better to just like assume the worst case and hit it with everything because, you know, if on day two, everything's gone and nothing comes back, then you can just forget about it. And you're not really going to be that bad off. Whereas if you spend a week in indecision of like, oh, d did I have allergies or maybe it's just a cold? And then on day seven, you're like right. in respiratory distress. And then it's, just, you know, you would have been way better off if you just threw the kitchen sink at it on day one. And so I think, um, someone who's been well prepared and is keeping their vitamin D levels up. I think that it's still good to do a loading dose of like a hundred thousand IU of vitamin D either on day one or separated over two days, like 50,000 IU the first and 50,000 IU the second day. If you know for a fact that your vitamin D level is on the high side, like 60 something nanograms per milliliter, you can probably kind of uh, just, um, flatten that out to like 20,000 IU a day for the first five days and then switch to a maintenance dose of 10,000 IU. But the thing is like, even if your vitamin D levels are kind of good, you know that if you're getting sick, it's going to get used up real fast. Yeah, and so yeah. I think doing the loading dose is a good idea, no matter what. Um, and then a 10,000 IU maintenance dose after the, after you've gotten, after you've packed in at least a hundred thousand IU in the first day or five days, 
then you can switch to a 10,000 IU maintenance dose. Um, although I think it's fine to do 20,000 IU if you feel intuitively that you're getting better faster when you keep the dose up. Right. Um, it's just for a few weeks, these doses are not going to kill you. You don't want to stay on 20,000 or even 10,000 IU forever, but you know, over a few weeks, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, I do think that it's good to, <coughs> excuse me, to balance that with, um, other fat soluble vitamins. And so, uh, I would use like between half, like five or 10,000 IU of vitamin A for every 10,000 of vitamin D that you take. Um, if you think you might be deficient in vitamin A, then I would match the loading dose with D as well with A. But if you know, if you have no reason to think you run low in vitamin A, you can probably just sort of do five or 10,000 IU of A the whole time and not worry about doing a loading dose with it. And then uh, K, vitamin K, especially K2 and vitamin E, um, I think just, you know, at least 20 IU of vitamin E and 200 micrograms of K2 for every 10,000 of D that you're doing, I think is also good. There's not great COVID specific data behind them, but there is some COVID specific data suggesting that vitamin A and K2 are very beneficial. Um, and vitamin E kind of comes along for the ride because you don't want your fat soluble vitamins too imbalanced. And then, um, the stuff that you would do around exposures, you can do more frequently. So like an antiseptic rinse and the zinc lozenges rather than, um, rather than basing it on exposure, just do the antiseptic rinse four times a day, the zinc lozenges, I would, um, kind of take, uh, like back to back, if you have symptoms until the symptoms start to abate, and then you can switch to every two hours until the symptoms are gone. And then there's some other things that are worth doing as well. So black seed oil has some good data behind it. 500 milligrams twice a day, melatonin, nine or 10 milligrams, a half hour before bedtime. Uh, quercetin phytosome has the best data behind it as opposed to regular quercetin. Quercetin phytosome is a mix of one-to-one uh, quercetin and lecithin, and it increases the absorption 20 fold. You okay. could probably take the quercetin with eggs or take sunflower lecithin with it in an equal amount and get the same result. But, and you would certainly save money if you did that. Um, and then there's a handful of other stuff. Um, there's some data on probiotics, green prop, uh, being Br Brazilian green propolis has one study behind it. Um, there's a couple good ones on omega threes. So I think getting 600 milligrams per day of EPA and DHA is good. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a handful of other stuff I think for, um, for recovering, I think that, uh, CoQ10 and if you have fatigue or hair loss, I think checking your iron levels yes. is a very good idea post COVID. Um, and then, uh, I think, um, the, the arginine I mentioned is for cases of respiratory distress. So if in respiratory distress, 1.6 grams of arginine twice a day. Um, glutathione doesn't have, you mentioned NAC in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think you'd probably get as good or better results with, uh, with taking reduced glutathione, but yeah. NAC or glutathione um, can both be very helpful for the lungs. Um, and David Brownstein's nebulized hydrogen peroxide and iodine protocol. Uh, I've, I watched, I'm a believer after uh, taking care of someone who had COVID around the holidays, um, nebulizing with that 
tw- uh, four times a day sure. um, seems really good. And for people who have like a post COVID cough, it also seems like keeping the nebulization up after you seem like you're not sick anymore. If you, it helps with the residual cough, cough as well. Yes. Love that. And we're always like bone broth as an expectorant. And here's other, <laughs> I'm going to link your whole COVID protocol for sure, for listeners to be able to purchase and, and download and get all of the nitty gritty details. I want to circle back on the idea that, you know, when I first saw early on with this, I think it was the New York times saying, we don't know why old people are getting sick. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, the suppression of vitamin D and its influence or the redefining of the phrase natural immunity. Um, I, I want to kind of dig back in the world of, cause, cause in the world of functional medicine and more of an ancestral style of eating, when we look at research, um, I, I want to talk about kind of for layman's people understanding the amount of funding that goes behind research and how many research studies are published to support a narrative. Um, and maybe also a little bit of a conversation on it's a two part. I do this all the time, but (laughs) the other two part is the suppression of therapeutics and the suppression of treatments so that we could establish this emergency authorization use condition to require this, you know, mono therapy of the experimental injection. <laughs> Those are very different questions. Yes, yeah. So one, I just want to talk think, about both basically before I let you go. <laughs> huh? I said, what? I just want to make Which sure one? I want to make sure we get to talk about both. So however you want to hit it. <laughs> well, okay. So I would say, you know, on the, on the latter question, I think that uh, I think I think Bobby Kennedy's work is really important because, yeah. you know, he's he's not an expert on biology or medicines or anything like that, but he is a lawyer who spent his whole career suing. Um, I mean, he, he I think he really comes more from an environmentalist background before he got into vaccine uh, yeah. safety and injuries. So he spent his whole career basically, you know, suing big corporations and has exquisite understanding of how legal liability and all that stuff works. And so the, and of course his, his um, most recent book, the real Anthony Fauci, I think is uh, an excellent kind of handbook to this, but the gist of it is there's two ways to get total legal liability for a vaccine in the United States. And by total legal liability, We mean that no one can sue the vaccine manufacturer for a vaccine injury, no matter what. And the first and most and longest established way is if it's on the CDC schedule for children or pregnant women, it falls under the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And what that does is it makes it so that just because it's recommended to children or to pregnant women, it makes it a complete liability shield so that even even a 40 year old man who's unmarried has no kids gets a vaccine injury because it's on the schedule for kids or pregnant women that man cannot sue them for the vaccine injury um now the second way is a more recent way and that's under the prep act if something gets if something if there is an if if there is an emergency declared under the prep act and this goes back to the mid 2000s. Okay. Uh, if there's an emergency declared under the PrEP Act, then um, then anything given an emergency use authorization, 
has that same liability shield. But there is some strings attached in this case, which is that you can't have existing treatments for the problem that the thing with the EUA is going to solve and still get the EUA for it. So you can't have a vaccine that is going to prevent a disease or prevent the disease from progressing from a um, from a mild case to a more severe case if there are treatments that prevent the disease or that can be given as early treatments to prevent a mild case from becoming a severe case. And so as a result, getting the EUAs for the vaccines required the suppression of all early treatments, regardless of what the evidence was. And it, and by contrast, because the vaccines were not a treatment for severe disease, they were pitched as something that would prevent you either from getting it or from having a mild disease become a severe disease. But because they're not a treatment for the severe disease, they did allow and even make standard practice the use of remdesivir, which is toxic and probably kills more people yes. than it saves. But because, yeah. but because it's an injectable for severe disease, uh, then it did not interfere with the liability shield for the EUAs. Mm. Now, if you look at what they're doing now, why are they trying to vaccinate all the kids for a disease that is so com- almost <laughs> completely affecting older people yes. with comorbidities, right? Um, there's interesting data in the UK. There were, um, there were, there someone submitted a, whatever the, um, they submitted a request. I don't, I'm not sure how the law works here. I don't know if it was the equivalent of a freedom of information act request in the U S or not, but someone submitted a request to, I think the office of national statistics for uh, separated by age, everyone who had died with COVID-19 on the death certificate with nothing else on the death certificate. And there were two people in all of UK during the entirety of the pandemic who were 15 years old or younger, who died with COVID-19 on their death certificate and didn't have another cause of death listed on the death certificate. And similarly, I believe in the United States there, they have been unable to show even one child that died that didn't have significant comorbidities. And so if you, so anyway, um, why are they why are they so adamant about vaccinating the children? Well, it makes no sense from a, the perspective of medicine, biology, science, data, public health, but it makes complete sense, as does everything else. If you assume that they're optimizing for profit with no liability, right? And so. That what they're doing now is they are getting this on the CDC schedule for kids so that they no longer need to suppress early treatments in order to have a total liability shield. So the liability, the burden of the liability shield shifts from the EUA given by the under the authority of the PREP Act onto the 1986 Act. And now they can come out with early treatments, but having suppressed the um, having effectively suppressed the uh, non-patented repurposed drugs that were cheap, now they've made room 
for coming out with early treatments that are patented that cost, you know, orders of magnitude more money. So, you know, instead of cents cost hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. Um, and so everything that they did from the suppression of early treatment to remdesivir to vaccinating the children, despite all sense making of the data, all of those things make complete sense when looked at from the perspective that they are trying to maximize profit with no liability. They're optimizing for the liability shield and for the widespread use of patented medicines. Um, and I think, I think, again, logically, when taken out of the mind manipulation that's going on in the media and whatnot, that that can be understood. But then what takes it next level and of concern is beyond profit. What is this serving as when we're actually threatening, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Um, and we're saying that this is a prerequisite for your job, you know, when we're, when we're, when we're transitioning from just being a profit element to a control mechanism or public influence sphere. How, how do you see that kind of interplay? I think, I think the, the, you know, any dollar that can be made is kind of a sideshow. Um, and I mean, you know, certainly there are some interests involved in this where profit is their primary purpose and, their role is, you know, their their self their self interest is to secure what's being established as a profit machine. Um, you know, so for like, if you take what the drug companies like Pfizer, for example, like clearly their self interest is making more dollars. Although I think their self interest is far more about the liability shield than any given dollar that can be made. Um, you know, if you go back to why the 1986 Act existed in the first place, it was because in 1983, there was a NIH-funded study that came out of UCLA showing that the DTP vaccine was killing one out of every 300 babies that it was given to. And Pfizer, at the, uh, Pfizer is basically the descendant of Wyeth, and Wyeth, uh, why? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so that basically what became Pfizer um, argued to the Reagan administration that they were losing like $20 of liability for every dollar of profit that they were making. And the Reagan administration said, well, why don't you just make these safe? Um, and in the language of the 1986 Act, they vaccines are unavoidably unsafe, which meant that it's not possible to make the vaccines safe enough to rescue the profits from the liability costs. Um, and, they, and they just basically threatened the Reagan administration that we're not going to make vaccines at all anymore if you don't give us a liability shield. And that's how that got passed. But, you know, if you look at that, if they can, if under circumstances where the data is sufficient to sue them for wrongful death, if they can lose $20 for every dollar of profit that they make, then clearly they care far more about the liability shield than they do about any given dollar. So vaccinating the children is not about the, the extra dollars that they make from each child. That's a complete sideshow to the fact that now they can move the liability shield yeah. from, the, from the EUA 
to the 1986 act and come out with um, with with early treatments now that are patented. So it's really the entirety of the dollars that they make. But but the real dip, right, is like the real profit is not in the, the, the additional people that were vaccinated with the covid vaccines in, in the you know five to 12 year old age group. The real profit is the market that's been opened up for the early treatments now that they no longer need the EUA for their liability shield. Um, but but even that, right, like Pfizer is a player here, but and their interest is profit. Um, but I, I think it's quite clear that there are other interests that want that are using vaccination status as the entry point into a global digital ID system. Yes. That will be tied to central bank digital currencies that will be run on some variant of a social credit score system. Um, yeah, should we? And that's should we talk that's, about that? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we should. I think it's huge. Sure. I mean, but but my but you know, j- just to drill the point home, I think the whatever profit that Pfizer makes is more important than this to Pfizer, but it's a sideshow compared to this in the in the larger picture. It's so right. wild. And it's, you know, the children essentially we're looking at approval potentially for under fives and just as a, a cog in this machine, not because they're at risk and not, you know, because they're putting other people at risk. Um, but let's talk maybe about this particular injectable biological product. Um, we hesitate to even call it a vaccine really, but, um, maybe some of the primary concerns of the manipulation of data of efficacy, uh, the underreporting in VAERS, which is estimated 31 to 100 times underreported. Um, what are you seeing in that world? On efficacy, I think there are two big elephants in the room that we need to call out. And the first is all-cause mortality, and the second is total COVID-like illness. Mm-hmm. And so one of the th- one of the pieces of manipulation is that we are constantly hearing about COVID-19 mortality, COVID-19 hospitalizations, COVID-19 incidence rate. But we knew from the beginning when the FDA had the voting committee, the, the, advi- the vaccine advisory board of the FDA had a voting committee that let, that published a briefing of their of their meeting in which they voted to give the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine. We knew from the the details that they published that 95% of suspected COVID in the Pfizer trial was not tested negative on a PCR test and the vaccines had no effect on it. And the reason that that's important is that in the Pfizer trial, the the way that you got counted as a symptomatic COVID case, which was the primary metric of efficacy, was that you personally decided that you thought you had COVID. And you would tell them that you thought you had COVID, and they would decide whether you were right that you might have COVID. And if they decided that you were wrong, you you didn't get counted as anything. If they decided you were right, then they tested you with the PCR test. And if you got a positive test, you get counted as a symptomatic COVID test, COVID case. And if you tested negative, then you, te- you counted as a suspected COVID case, but not an actual COVID case. 
Now, when they publish the reports on the efficacy, they don't even tell you the numbers of suspected COVID cases. They only tell you the symptomatic COVID cases. So when they say 95% efficacy in the Pfizer trial, it's 95% efficacy of you testing negative if you went to them and said, I think I have COVID. And they said, we think you might be right. Let's test you. Wow, right. So 95, 95% of the people who thought they had COVID, who the doctors agreed might have COVID, were turned away and sent away saying, you don't have COVID. You don't count for anything. And, and we, we don't know from the publication of the, any of the Pfizer trial data, we don't see that at all. We only see that in the briefing document of the FDA's advisory board for the, uh, for the EUA given in December 2020 for the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA did not, the FDA did not vote on the uh, approval of Comirnaty, which was widely you know, called the approval of the Pfizer vaccine. When they gave that approval, they did not call the voting, the advisory board to vote at all. They said, this is so obvious, we're just going to approve it. And, and so we don't have a briefing document. So we have no idea what the suspected COVID was like at, at the six-month mark. And we don't know for any of the other trials either, as, as far as I know. I haven't seen that from Moderna or for any of the other trials. All right. So for, from the beginning, we know that the vaccine has no effect on COVID-like illness only on PCR-positive COVID-like illness, which we call COVID. And we also know that in the FDA document, there were two cases of serious uh, COVID-like illness, suspected COVID, and they were both in the vaccine group, not in the placebo group. And so presumably at the six-month mark, 95% of the COVID-like illness was still not COVID. And presumably there was some spectrum of mild, moderate, and serious COVID-like illness. And presumably some people died from it, but we have no idea what those numbers are. Now, in the grand and sort of the, the broader population, we had a hint that there was something similar in late October of last year in the general population of the United States. And that hint was the CDC came out with a study claiming to show that the vaccines are 5.5 times more effective than prior infection at giving you immunity to becoming sick. And what they did was they used what's called a test negative case control design. And test negative case control studies are a scam. And they are what since 2011, 90% of observational vaccine efficacy studies use a test negative design. To highlight how much of a scam the test negative design is, in a review of the review that I read where they identified 90% of vaccine efficacy studies since 2011 as test negative designs, they gave four polio trials as an example, not, excuse me, not trials, studies. In those four polio studies, well, I should back up. The test negative design means that everyone in the study is equally sick with the same thing. And if you test negative for the pathogen of interest, and if you're more likely to test negative if you're vaccinated, then that is evidence of the vaccine's efficacy. Okay, so in the case of polio, right, 
these four studies, every single person is paralyzed. And the vaccinated people among them were more likely to have a negative stool test for polio. And so they calculate that the vaccine is 90 something percent effective at preventing polio because among all the paralyzed people, they were 95% likely they were, you know, it had 95% efficacy at giving them a negative stool test. Now you may wonder, right? Like, why does it matter if you have a negative stool test, if you're paralyzed? Right, right, right. Right. So that's why I say it's a scam because when the public hears that something is effective, they think like, oh, I'm not going to wind up in the hospital. I'm not, I'm not going to be paralyzed. Exactly. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a, it's a scam. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. yeah. so the CDC does this, is what the CDC is doing with COVID. So they have 200,000 people hospitalized for COVID-like illness. That includes six symptoms, respiratory failure, COVID-like pneumonia, dyspnea, which is trouble breathing, fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. Okay. So 200,000 people all hospitalized, not just sick, hospitalized right. for one of these six, one or more of these six symptoms. And so they said, well, we're just going to compare fully vaccinated people to naturally immune people. And because we're testing the effect uh, on prevention of infection, we need to have people who had at least two PCR tests that have to be at least three months apart so we don't confuse the same case of COVID testing twice. And so when they took the 200,000 people and I took from them the subgroup of 7,000 people who were either fully vaccinated but never infected or previously infected but never vaccinated and who had two, at least two PCR tests at least three months apart, that turned out to be 7,000 people. So in these 7,000 people, 94.4% of them tested negative for COVID. Now, they didn't tell you if that was also true in the big sample of 200,000 people. And so that's been kind of, I've been wondering this since late October, does the big sample look like the little sample? Right. Because if the big sample looks like the little sample and 94.4% of people hospitalized for COVID-like illness test negative for COVID, why are we even talking about COVID hospitalizations? Mm, sure, sure. Right? Like, what? why even mention the word? 95% of the people in the hospital for those symptoms don't have it, according <laughs> to the PCR test, right? Um, and so what they found in that study using the test negative design was that with all these people who are hospitalized for COVID-like illness, the people who were fully vaccinated were less likely to have a positive PCR test than the people who are naturally immune. And that they were only 30% more likely, but after they did a bunch of statistical adjustments, it turned into 5.5 times more likely sure. to test, to test positive in the naturally immune people. And that's where the headline came from. Yeah. The headline should have been 94.4% of people in the hospital for COVID like illness don't have COVID, <laughs> right? How is that not the big headline? Right. Right. Okay. What are we so, what are we chasing? so this Friday, we finally, for the first time since late October, right? Months now, I've been like, what does the big sample look like? So CDC on Friday, January 28th, comes out with the first of its kind test negative case con control design, looking at the big sample. So instead of isolating it to the subgroup that's fully vaccinated or naturally immune with two COVID tests three months or more apart, they just look at all the people hospitalized with COVID-like illness during that time period. And so this covers from late August to early January, and there's 80 something thousand hospitalizations that are covered. And 
in this case, it's not 94.4%, but still 79% of hospitalizations for COVID-like illness don't have COVID. 79%, right? And so when they tell you, and, and of course, what they the headline was that the booster shot with an mRNA vaccine is 90%, was 90% effective against COVID-19 associated hospitalizations in, during Delta dominant period and, yes. and a 90% during Omicron, right? But effective against COVID-19 hospitalizations means you're hospitalized for mm-hmm. respiratory failure, mm-hmm. trouble breathing, COVID-19 like pneumonia, vomiting fever, and or diarrhea. F- effective against COVID-19 hospitalizations means if you're hospitalized for those symptoms, you test negative. Yeah. All right. And so that's, it's true, right? Because they defined COVID-19 hospitalizations as a positive test if you're in the hospital. But then you have all these people showing graphs of the divergence of COVID-19 hospitalizations among vaccinated and unvaccinated people, what they're not telling you is all those vaccinated people are still hospitalized. Yes, yes. They're testing just testing negative. negative doesn't matter. Right. So they're completely fleecing the public because, you know, so every time you're present and what's the mortality rate, say, the yeah. fully vaccinated yeah. COVID-19 like illness, that's PCR negative. What's the mortality rate? I have no idea because they don't tell, they don't tell us the fact that they're not telling us means that they're scamming us, right? Like, until proven otherwise, this should be assumed to be a scam because you it's so obvious you would want to know the answer to that. And so the fact that they're just protect like the fact that they run with this headline, you know, 94 percent effective against COVID-19 hospitalization. They don't tell you that that's based on testing negative when the fully vaccinated people are hospitalized. So, by the way. 57% of people who are hospitalized for COVID-like illness in the CDC's data are, are vaccinated right. and 43% are, are unvaccinated. And so it's, it seems like the vaccine is not doing one or another thing in one way, direction or another. It's having no effect on COVID-like illness hospitalizations. Now, total hospitalizations, I don't know. We don't have that data. And all-cause mortality is the other thing that we're missing. So right. we, they're, they're, um, the only data set of all-cause mortality that I've seen is out of the English data from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics. And Alex Berenson had, had popularized this, and I did a much more in-depth analysis of it. But basically what that shows is that all-cause mortality for people over 60 in England, and this is observational, but vaccinated people appeared to have a mortality benefit at the beginning of of. Uh, 2021. And it seemed to spend the whole year declining such that by the end of 2021, that mortality benefit had almost disappeared. And for people under 60, it appeared that that the all-cause mortality was, was way higher for vaccinated people. And so there are problems with this data, right? Many people have written about the limitations of the ONS data, which are manifold. And one of the big ones is that they group together um, 10 to 15 year olds. That means they group together like 10 to 12 year olds who weren't even getting vaccinated with, you know, 12 to 22 year old boys who have a really high risk of myocarditis after the vaccine yeah. with 50 to 59 year old men who have a really high di- risk of dying from COVID. Right. And so we don't know if the reason that the mortality is so much higher in that younger age group 
is because the vaccines are killing teenagers or if it's because the older people were more likely to get vaccinated first and get hospitalized for COVID. Like, so the data is not high quality and we should demand that the ONS publish the data based on separating each decade of life or something like that in order to know what's going on. But, you know, if, if the, um, if it's equally possible that the vaccine is killing teenagers and that it's con- and that the data is confounded by older people getting vaccinated first and then dying, um, how are we vaccinating the teenagers until we separate that out? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's not the fact that we know the ONS data shows the vaccines are killing the teenagers. It's that that's a equally plausible interpretation of the data as the as the more innocuous one. And you don't do something, you don't, you don't ethically mandate mass use of anything that has a 50% likelihood in the data of killing off the people you're giving it to. Um, and so the, so the, the big elephants in the room on, on efficacy are, and all cause mortality is really efficacy uh, net net with, with adverse effects because it's sure. You know, all cause mortality, all cause mortality is a prime primary metric, right? Because you can argue until your lips are blue and your whole face is blue and you pass out. We can all argue um, ourselves to death over whether someone died with COVID or because of COVID and whether a vaccine side effect was following the vaccine or because of the vaccine. Sure. But no one's going to argue about whether someone died, you know, unless it's Elvis Presley or Jim Morrison, you know, a few people might argue about it, but generally speaking, death is non-controversial. It's the causes of death that are controversial. And so all-cause mortality should be our primary metric. It should be the Absolutely. data we most want to see because, right. because it's objective and it, right. and, it, and it unifies adverse effects with benefits. And so the fact that it is so hard to get anything close to all-cause mortality is, it, you know, it's very suspicious that the people that could produce the all-cause mortality data don't want to because it doesn't look the way that they want it to. Um, so all-cause mortality and, and total COVID-like illness are the are the big things that we have to, to constantly be asking for. You know, when they say X number percent of COVID-19 hospitalizations result in death when they're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you got to say, what about the 79% of hospitalizations for COVID-like illness that aren't in those numbers? What's their mortality rate? Yeah. That's going to be the constant question to that. And when they say something about saving lives, you have to say, where's the all-cause mortality data? Where is it? Um, on the VAERS data, I think that uh, you know, no one knows how overestimated or underestimated it is, but all the data that's ever been studied suggests that there's it's underestimated to one or another degree. And you know, some people on the internet have said, and no one in the peer-reviewed literature or in any reliable source, but some people say, well, anyone can report VAERS data, which is a bad vaccine adverse effect reporting system. Um, you know, and so because of the media attention on the vaccine, you're going to get overestimation. But I looked in CDC data and I traced references back and I, I can't find anyone ever claiming in, on the CDC site or in the peer-reviewed literature that there's any overestimation in the VAERS database. 
even during previous pandemics where there was a lot of media attention on the vaccine, it is assumed that there is media stimulated reporting, which is that you would have more reporting than you otherwise would because of all of the attention. Mm-hmm. But they've always believed that what that means, it's that there that during those periods, there's less under reporting than there would have been. And so but you can go both ways. Like, yes, there's a lot of attention on the covid vaccines, but there's also a lot of of bullying and pressure that is also unprecedented compared to past vaccines to silence side effects. And so, you know, I I have no idea where that tug of war is pulling it. Um, But, you know, they could be underestimated as much as a hundredfold. um, And they, you know, they it's within the realm of conceivability that they're overestimated, but that's no, you know, that's the highly unlikely scenario. But look, the thing is, it's not good data. And when you're dealing with cost benefit, Traditionally, what you do is you use a higher margin of safety against bad data, right? So in my field of nutrition, if they are setting a a tolerable upper intake level for a vitamin, which is the upper limit of what you can safely use without any guidance, if they have really good data on what is the dose that causes a toxic effect, they use an upper limit that's relatively close to that dose. But if the data is really low quality and the uncertainty is high, they multiply that upper limit by an uncertainty factor. So if the data quality is like, let's say the lowest observed adverse effect of vitamin B6 is 500 milligrams. Because that came from case reports and the the math around it was not solid, and the uncertainty was high, they used an uncertainty factor of five to say that the, that the upper limit for B6 is 100 milligrams. But had we had really good data that the adverse effects don't start till 500 milligrams, they would have used an upper limit of 400 milligrams. Okay. So that you, you know, because you know it's 500, so you know you can go up to 400, right? Yeah. So if the VARES, if the criticism of the VARES system is that it's terrible data and that we have no idea what the real rate is, that should be reflected by a proportional amount of caution that is increased, not decreased, because of how bad the data is. What we have instead is people saying, well, the VARES system is not good numbers. We just have, you know, anyone can report to it. We don't know what's causal. And so we should throw it out as junk. What about that's, that just one life? What about right. that just one life thing? <laughs> you know, right, like, right. Where did that go? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where did that go? Where did that go? But I'm, but it's, I mean, the, the ra- rational risk management says that when your data is not good, you exercise more caution, not less. Right. Right. And it seems that, you know, data across the board is just not good when it comes to COVID, not good when it comes to the vaccine, not good when it comes to adverse outcomes. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of holes, I think, um, let's talk a little bit about your work in terms of opposing mandates, particularly in New York. And I know this has probably shifted in 
recent weeks with the OSHA mandate being struck down, but we're still seeing, you know, mandates for medical workers, certain employers still upholding them, you know, regardless. And of course in New York, um, to be able to enter into restaurants and things like that. Yeah. I want to add to that, you know, Chris, a lot of our audience, well, our audience is national, but a lot in Texas, the free state of Texas, where, you know, I haven't worn a face mask since March of 2021. My child who's five and a half has never worn a mask on her face. She's unvaccinated. She has religious freedom with her ability to, um, you know, uh, with her, her authorization that we get, you know, whatever we do through the government for not having to be vaccinated based on religious, what is the word I'm looking for? Exemption. Exemption. Thank you. Yes. Um, so yeah, I just want to kind of hear from your experience, like what's happening out there. Um, because I'm hearing from a lot of people in Texas that, you know, they acquiesced maybe with the first two and now they're being bullied with the booster. Um, where do we draw the line? What are things we should be concerned about? Um, and just kind of what you've seen in that space, that'll be our kind of closing question with mandates and medical freedom, medical autonomy per se. So in New York city, there are multiple layers here. There are statewide mandates from the governor of the state. There are mayor, mayoral citywide mandates based on executive order of the mayor. And those mandates include vaccine mandates for employment. And then they also include vaccine mandates for the citizenry to do almost anything indoors that wouldn't be considered essential. So if you're unvaccinated, you, and this is by the books, right? This is what happens on paper, not necessarily what happens in real life, but on paper, if you're unvaccinated, you can't go to the gym. You, you can go to the drugstore. You can go to the grocery store. You generally can go to stores where you buy things, but not stores where not venues where you do things. So you can't go to the gym you can't go to the restaurant, or if you do, you you have to eat outdoors. You can't eat indoors at the restaurant. And outdoors, they they uh, prohibited the heaters that were used for outdoor seating during the 2020 of the pandemic. So you yeah. it's very cold. Where's um, my plague toilet to use? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you you can't go to the museum, and you you can't. Um, and so th- this is extended down to five year olds now. So. A five-year-old can't go to an educational museum in New I York. I saw footage of a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old being arrested in New York City. I think. Oh, that was Jayla. She's oh, Jayla. Oh. Jayla is a is a local hero now. Um, Goodness, at though, the that at was... the American Museum of, of Natural History. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean that that's that's what it looks like on paper, and so the the OSHA case is completely irrelevant because the mayor has mandated. Uh, vaccines for every business in the city. And so it doesn't, the OSHA mandate was chump change compared to it mm-hmm. because this includes small businesses and big businesses. And in fact, the local branch of Chase Bank uh, that's closest to me has a sign on the door that says due to New York City's vaccina- uh, COVID-19 vaccination requirement, this branch is closed. <laughs> oh and, um, and so you know, that's what, that's what it is on paper on in real life. There's a lot of don't ask, don't tell policy, and it's very borough specific. So Mm. in Queens, I would say nine out of 10 places aren't enforcing. And, you know, you haven't worn a mask in forever in Texas. I mean, neither have I in New York city, like there's a, you know, there's a, there's like a, I forgot what the fine is now. Supposedly there's a $500 fine for, um, 
not wearing a mask on the subway. And wow. they, when they doubled it, I was like, okay, I'm never wearing a mask on the subway again. And so <laughs> yeah, let's go <laughs> now. Now I like, I've, I have not, I've not worn a mask on the subway since they doubled the fines for it, but I've never heard of any, I don't know anyone who knows anyone who's gotten fined for, um, for not wearing a mask on the subway in, in Manhattan, the enforcement I think is very high of these mandates in Brooklyn. I think it's very neighborhood dependent in Queens. It's very across the board rare. Um, not, I mean, not rare, but like 10, 15% or so. And, um, a lot of, so I, I have, uh, and I, I'm kind of incorporating this into my general activism, if you will. Um, but I have uh, friends or many of us who have a signal group where we pass around this Google Maps list of venues that we have verified repeatedly don't enforce the mandates. <laughs> and um, so now I'm just like going to every business in my neighborhood and, you know, go in and if they ask me for the vaccination papers, I'll ask to talk to their manager, explain why I'm not carrying my papers, see if I can have any impact and go somewhere else and find a place that lets me eat and then put it on the Google map. <laughs> so uh -huh. I think it's really important to support the businesses that are, yes, right. uh, that are Be not enforcing or... the mandate. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I, I do think that these mandates in New York are hastening the devolution of state power to privatized government. So if you look at the enforcement, for example, of the uh, key to NYC vaccination requirement for indoor venues, the, um, the only types of venues that are consistently enforcing it are things that are run by the government. So like the American Museum of Natural History, I, it's, I know it's government charted. I think it's at least nominally run by the government. The restaurants are very hit or miss. And if you look at the video footage of what's happening when, so now like multiple times per week, there are activists getting arrested at restaurants for restaurant sit-ins. Mm -hmm. And this, they were the activist and the, the, um, the girl that you were speaking of Jayla with a, with a crew of these activists, um, they had gotten so far gotten arrested twice at the American museum of natural, natural history. Um, but what's happening here is the cops come when the restaurant calls them. And if you look at video footage, the cops will say things to the activists like, look, I can't make them serve you if you don't if they don't want to serve you, you're going to have to go to a different restaurant. And so that to me, just watching a video of a, of a cop saying that just kind of made a light bulb go off my head like there are no cops or nor anyone else that are enforcing the mayor's executive order. Hmm. They are coming. They're funded by tax money, rapidly dwindling tax money, but they're coming at the behest of the restaurant and they're coming and saying, we're here because this restaurant doesn't want you here and you're going to have to go to a restaurant that wants you. So it's not, it's not even within the realm of anything. It's not even in their vocabulary that there is a mayoral executive order that says you need your papers at that restaurant. And so they aren't being taken to They're at, a police station or. Oh, they are. No, they are. Oh, okay. No, they are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they so are being charged, but that has to be driven at, by the business or place. Not on paper, but that's what's happening. Like okay. on paper, on paper, the mayor has an executive order that says no restaurant can allow these people in. 
But in real life, that's not what's happening. In real life, the cops only show up if the restaurant calls them. And when the cops show up, they say that they're there because the restaurant called them and they're going to have to go to a different restaurant. And they don't mention the mayor and they don't mention the mayor's executive order. And they do charge them with trespassing. And the trespassing charges, the restaurant didn't want them there and they refused to go. So it's very fascinating that on paper, there's a mayoral executive order. But in real life, the cops are becoming the private enforcers of private businesses, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's and it's because no one believes in the mandate. People might say they believe in the mandate, but no one believes in the mandate enough to get into conflict over it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in terms of things that are really important to do, I, I do think that just everyday people who live in the city need to support the businesses that are not enforcing, yeah. create an incentive structure against the ones that are. Um and there are many lawsuits going on and there's a lot of, you know, there are, there are losses, but there's a lot of successes in the lawsuits that are going on. Um, just recently, in fact, the, uh, the, I don't know if it was the state Supreme court or one of the hot, one of the higher courts um, ruled the statewide mask mandate is unconstitutional yes, that. mm-hmm. and that's now getting appealed. So it's not done yet, but that's, that was good news. Um there is a, I did an interview on my podcast with Angela McArdle. She is currently the chair of the LA Libertarian Party, and she came to New York to help organize with us a citywide referendum to amend the city's charter to prevent the mayor from being able to make executive orders, vaccine mandates. And I think this is really, really important and it will probably be what I'm devoting most of my attention to for the coming year. We have a meeting about it tomorrow night, and it will probably be of the status that it'll be on the ballot in November soon. And in November, we'll have you know most of the year to campaign to get people to pass this as a referendum. And it's not a presidential election, so I you know it's very much about getting voter turnout. Um, and I think that has a lot of promise. And um, New Yorkers have proven that they are smarter than you would think they are when it comes to referendums, like based on the candidates they elect, you would, you know, there's, they are, they vote much smarter on the referendums than they do the candidates. Okay. Um, and, um, and so I, you know, those, I, I think those are, are the biggest things. Um, I do think that we, need to do a lot more talking to businesses. So one of the things that Angela had brought up in, in our interview was in LA, they do a lot of call banking and just, you know, calling up all the businesses in the area and talking to them about the mandates and yep. trying to get them on board with not enforcing. So I think we could do a lot better on that. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, to be honest right now, I, I'm most, I'm most proud that I live next to Canada more than anything else with the um the trucker situation yes, and yes. with i don't know if you saw it the uh the last living signer of the canadian charter of rights and freedoms which is the equivalent of the american bill of rights only it was signed in 1982 so there's still someone alive who drafted it and who signed it this is like jefferson still being alive yeah, today yeah. to defend the bill of rights he's now suing um the canadian government for being in violation of four of four sections of it Amazing. and i think that's you know, he, no one on earth has more authority than he right. does to speak to the original intent of that. So I think that's really encouraging. And I think it's might not be coincidence that the trucker situation is, um, is 
preceded that his announcement by a couple of days because this guy's been the last living signer of this document for the last two years. And where was he? Right. right. And so I, I think that, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things, you know, you, like a lot of this has been just a never ending cycle of discouragement. Like the police and firefighters got this huge march when they put the mandates on them. But it was like, how long could they hold out with not being able to feed their family? Uh-huh. And, you know, not that long. Um, but meanwhile, we have these truckers that control 10 or 15 percent of the distribution of goods, have a 45 mile long wall of trucks that they can block anything with and have six point five million dollars of donations that can keep them feeding themselves and their families until they're done so far. Um I think that might be the thing that breaks the cycle of of discouragement, because I think they have way more leverage than any other group has been protesting the mandates. And I wouldn't be surprised if Brian Peckford coming forth and launching this lawsuit was a reaction to finally seeing that there's some movement that has staying power in the populace. Now, in Texas... Uh, or Florida, I think that, you know, it, it do, it's definitely looks better there for freedom than elsewhere. But we have to remember a couple of things. One is that this totalitarianism is is a global thing. And yes. if if we don't defend New York, I like to say, like within the, New, the United States, New York is like your nose and the resistance in New York is like your immune system. <laughs> and the last thing that you want, you know, if you're the spleen or the liver The last thing you want is for the mucosal immune system in your nose to run away when it encounters a virus. Right. And so I think, I think for, you know, people in Texas or Florida need to really support us here because if they conquer New York, they're just going to move to your state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not time to get comfortable. It's time to keep talking and keep the conversation with a strong position. Not, not a time to be neutral by any, by any means, I believe. Yeah. Um, let's talk about people can support you. Thank you so much. It's been such a, uh, informative conversation. I want you to share where people can find you, where people can support you in your activism. And then also your book coming out vitamins and minerals one Oh one. So my website is, (laughs) so my website is chrismasterjohnphd.com. Uh, you can click on support or donate for many ways to support me. Um, my, my book is on hold until I'm done with my contribution to the mandates. But as, as soon as I, as soon as I feel like I've done my work and uh, my most important work on this, I'm going to get back to finishing it. It can be pre-ordered at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash book. Uh, my COVID guide, as well as many other informational products that I have available can, can also be um, ordered. And there are many other ways that you can support my work there as well. Uh, if you do live in New York City or want to, um, or want to keep up with what's happening locally, you can go to ChrisMasterJohnPH.com/mandate, where I have a list that's really awesome. geared at people who live here, but other people might be interested. And um, I am at imminent threat of being deplatformed on YouTube and at probable threat of being deplatformed on Instagram. And so, if you want to make sure that you stay connected with me. ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com slash uncensored is where I will keep everyone up to date of where to find me. Awesome. So great. Um, We really appreciate having you on here. And just last thing, I wanted to note that the outcoming book and all of the resources that you have are super thorough. Our audience is, you know, food is medicine, biochem nerds, and you guys will absolutely 
enjoy the details of signs and symptoms of deficiency, risk factors, testing and assessment, um, you know, caveats to testing, how to ensure you're getting accurate results, how to correct deficiency, and even to the point of like, yes, riboflavin does turn your pee yellow <laughs> and so much more. Um, so definitely go check that out. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, we'll put all links in the show notes. So from any of the resources that Chris talked about, as well as, of course, his website and all the places to find him, you can check that out in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank for you. So- thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.